Hello and welcome to this week's Therapy for Me and I suppose I should start by wishing you a Happy New Year so I will start by wishing you a Happy New Year. I hope you had a pleasant um, period of celebration um, if you managed to make it through till midnight which I have to admit I didn't. Uh, I was close but I went, I sat down with a book um, or lay down with a book actually on the bed at about half 11 and didn't quite make it to midnight uh, which was a bit of shame but these things happen and it's probably just a mark of my age anyway let's crack on with a little bit of that twangy guitar <laughs> There's going to be a little bit of a Christmas hangover kind of vibe, uh, even though it's currently the 5th of January. Um, I've still got some Christmas stuff that I don't know whether I don't know whether it happened and I forgot or whether it, in fact I don't think it did happen and I forgot. I think it's well one of them was and one of them wasn't. So let's go with the one that wasn't. This is the one that's about Christmas, but it's actually um, it's materialised since uh, I recorded last week's episode. And that was the fact that uh, we were talking about Scotland and we were talking about, and as you, as you tend to do when you talk about Scotland and New Year, you tend to talk about the fact they get the extra bank holiday. So you talk a little bit, a bit about Hogmanay and, you know, that's the normal chat that tends to go on. It's the Scotland New Year chat that goes on. But then it was dropped into conversation that actually the Scots didn't, for a long, long time, didn't celebrate Christmas. And by that, what it meant was, and I'd completely forgotten this, and I don't know if I knew it or whether it had really registered. It's one of those facts that now I think about it, I might have known, but I don't think I've really understood what I was being told, even though it's really, really simple. And the really, really simple thing is that it wasn't until 1958 that actually um, Scotland had a public holiday for Christmas Day. So if you go back to go back to um, Charles I and uh, heads, heads rolling and Cromwell and all that kind of thing and Puritanism and and all this all this kind of stuff when when Christmas is 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 deemed not to be a celebration that should be uh, that, that should be held and was banned effectively, um, and the Scots didn't pick up back with it in the same way that everybody did south of the border. So, it for a long 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 time it remained something that didn't happen in Scotland, and consequently they they embraced the whole sort of three days as it what I believe it was around New Year and that's what became the Hogmanay celebration and hence the reason why the public holidays are around that bit and of course what the Scots have done is as they've re-embraced Christmas they've not given up the other thing that's kind of theirs which by the way is genius if you're gonna if you're gonna do what they've done then you've absolutely nailed it by giving yourself a, an advantage, which is what they've done, and giving themselves an extra bit of time off, which is absolutely fab, and we know they like a bank holiday up there. Um, but then also, having worked out that Christmas isn't actually going to bring around the end of the world, uh, that you might as well crack on and enjoy that as well, which which they do, which they do. So um, a little thing, completely little thing, apropos of nothing, but either it registered or it hadn't, but that 1958 doesn't sound a long time ago for a public holiday to have been put in place for Christmas because obviously we all think it's been, well, let's face it, we all think of it as being Charles Dickens and Victorian, don't we? <laughs>
Tuesday. I've been vocal on dry January before. Uh, dry January is something that I frown upon. I probably frown upon it because I can't get my head around the concept of abstinence in January. Only because I find it uh, it's a long month. It's it's dark. It's horrible. It's bleak. I often have a trip to um, California in the middle of it, which is a very sociable trip. So dry January would involve me having to not drink when I went to California, which is there's very little chance of that happening. But also, if you're going to pick a month, then to me, it just seems the wrong one. You know, dry May would seem a much better idea than dry January. I get I get why we talk about dry January. I just think it's the wrong time to, of year to even think about it. I think, you know, why, why would you not do that at a point in time when uh, you're a lot happier, there's a lot more daylight, you can go out for a walk, you can do other things rather than sit and think to yourself, oh, I really fancy a glass of wine. And so I've never, I've, I've never sort of had much or held much store by uh, dry January. Um, but it seems that the French uh, have the French government who uh, who it's been a recent thing. Dry January in France, it's it's only going back sort of three or four years. They kind of took it from us, and it's great. It's gaining some traction. But the French government were were kind of being hoped they would they get behind it more this year, and they've kind of turned around and said no. But part of that is down to. Um, issues with the French wine industry. And and I was reading this, um, the whole reason why the whole dry January thing came up was, what one, because I, I, I kind of don't get it. So I, I'm giving myself reasons to have a go at it because I'm, in reality, I know I haven't got what it takes to to do it. Um, and and I'm not ready to do it. I think with something like this, you've got to be, you've got to embrace the whole concept of wanting to, to, to give something up. And I'm not ready to embrace the concept of not having a glass of wine in, in, in January. But, Whilst I was reading about what was going on in France, the the stat that really struck me, which was the the one that I was kind of knocked out about, was that uh, alcohol consumption is down massively in France. Uh, it's down, um, and I've got the stat here. It's down seventy percent in the last fifty years, and nearly ten percent in the last year alone. Now, those figures are massive. Now that either means that either means an enormous amount of wine was being drunk in France 50 years ago. And that's entirely possible. And that might go back to wine for both meals and all manner of things. Now, it also talks to the fact that there's definitely a generational thing where, um, you know, we are, it's it's probably our part of the population, my part of the population that is that is keeping the drinking thing going because it doesn't seem to be something that the kids are, as as bothered about, and you've only got to look at what's going on with low and no uh, no alcohol consumption to to prove that. But just those stats alone seemed massive, absolutely massive. Seventy pence in the last fifty years, and nearly ten percent last year, and it seems to be something that's going on all across Europe as well. Now, part of it is a move away from wine to beer. So um, that's a that's a thing. Craft beer has has taken a push. I guess gin is also a part of that as well. So some of it is about what we're drinking, and the French have actually been that the French are pouring money into the wine industry. They're actually take that then they need to cut production down because otherwise the the prices will just tumble to next to nothing. So they've actually been pumping money into the industry to get rid of excess alcohol. 
it seems hard to believe, but there is an excessive amount of wine floating around in France they need to get rid of. So that seems kind of kind of strange. But just just going back to where we started, just huge, huge drops. And I wasn't really ready for that. Well, put it this way, that's not happened in my life. <laughs> I wanted to, I was going to say this originally at the end, but I'm going to put it in now just so I don't depress you too much. Um, because two things are going on simultaneously uh, across the water and and over here, which is that essentially campaigning has started. We have we have started that somebody has fired the starting pistol on an election campaign that we don't know when it's going to be yet. All that we know is it's going to be some point before the end of January next year. But it seems to be that the decision's been made that we start campaigning us from now because it's already happening. There's been two two uh, different goes at it this week. Uh, Keir Starmer's uh, made a you know start to put some framework down for what he believes and and starting to question the Tory record this week. And Sunak's been doing exactly the same thing. Now Sunak kind of came out and said or hinted that the election would be in the second half of the year. I don't necessarily think that's the case. In fact, I've got a sneaking suspicion it will be in the first half of the year. Um, And I think what he said is he's done something to push it back because he needs the element of surprise. So what he's doing at the moment is he's got a year. We know it's got to be within the next year. So it's, it's, it's kind of makes sense that people start campaigning now because it, Chances are it will fall in 2024. But I think he's, he's you know, making it look like it's going to be further away to allow him to have the element of surprise of calling it early. And I think he... I think he will call it early. I think there's a chance he will call it early. I don't know what's going to get so much better over the course of the year that is going to mean that pushing it back further is going to help. Um, and the only reason I say that is because... I don't see constructively what this government's going to do. Really, over the you know, an extra year is not going to allow them all the things they're going to get hit on. They're going to get hit on anyway. So it might be that the uh, you know a summer election might be a better a June election might be a better um, time for them, particularly if if the economics of it look okay and 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 as, and as far as we we going, people do tend to feel a little bit better off, or feel a little bit better about things in the summer. So I'm still thinking it's going to be there. But the important thing is not that. The important thing is we, we, we've we got a year of this. Whether we like it or not, we have got a year of this and they're going to be tearing chunks out of each other. But more importantly, there's going to be a whole load of reframing of narrative. And it's already started. James cleverly comes out this week and says that effectively the, pre- the pledge with regard to small, uh, so with, as- with asylum claims has been dealt with. That 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 there are effectively no asylum, no nobody claiming asylum with an outstanding claim, which of course is nonsense because the way he framed what he said was on a specific uh, amount of data from a specific point, and there are still a hundred thousand plus claims, or whatever it is, in the system waiting to be processed. But what he's basically said is the backlog's been dealt with now. The the backlog is something that was identified halfway through last year, and what he's saying is that thing we identified halfway through a year that last year that's gone, and that's fine. That, that, that makes sense. But the six months worth of backlog that was created from the point that this backlog was identified is still in place. So that's the that's the the bit. And actually, it looks like those claims are going to be are going to be held to a, a reasonable amount of scrutiny, uh, possibly some form of official scrutiny as well. So they may well have to apologise about that statement. We don't know. We'll wait and see. But the point is gear yourself up for this and you are going to have to be 
on your A-game because it's going to be twisted. The narratives are going to be twisted so much. The wording's going to be really, really important because they are going to tell you that black is white and white is black over the course of the next 12 months. Thursday. Whatever happens, we need to carry on going to the pantomime. We went to the panto this week. I think I mentioned it before that we'd booked tickets and we booked tickets for this year now, um, but for, for December. But we haven't been for a few years and the tradition is that we go to the the, the panto in the Lyceum at Sheffield. Um, and it was Beauty and the Beast this year and it was a great cast. And uh, a guy called Amy Williams, who's who's been doing it, I think this is his 15th year, playing the dame uh, is just is just tremendous it's hard to explain he's the heart of that particular production and he's created something really 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 special and it was on all levels brilliant it was everything you wanted in a pantomime so it was creaky you know creaky's wrong they were so beautifully rehearsed that it enabled them to do what you're supposed to do in pantomime which is in the comedy elements, you're supposed to go off script. You're supposed to try and make each other laugh. It's supposed to feel like it's absolutely f- falling apart, even though it absolutely isn't. So they were straying left, right, and centre from the script. They were all they were all literally wetting themselves as they were doing it. But they could do that because they were. It was so well put together. It didn't affect the dramatic scenes, which were delivered very, very straight. The lighting was great. It was great to see a band. Um, the the five piece band that were uh, there providing all the all the music and they were all absolutely superb and you forgot about them very quickly when the show was going but actually if, if on those moments where you drew yourself back and listened to what they were doing how much incidental stuff they were throwing in it was it was absolutely superb with the signatures and everything that they they got going on so it was just the consummate performance. Um, it looked stunning. Costumes were great, but this is just a regional. This is just a regional event. Yes, it's a decent theatre in Sheffield, and it's certainly very, very well put together. And there's no corners been been cut, as far as I could tell. Nice use of technology, great use of pyro, all that kind of thing. But I think the bit that I, th- I enjoyed more than anything was that I looked around a few times and everybody in our family group was laughing and everybody in the place was laughing. There's something about it whereby, you know, you've, you've got that thing. It is an eight to 80 kind of audience and everybody was just having a great, great time. It was two hours of unique Britishness. I don't know how else to to really describe it, and it just needs to it needs to carry on. We need to keep going to the pantomime because if if that that is such a special night that we don't want to lose that as a as a as a British thing. Um, so forget how old you are. You need to keep going, and it's a, a lesson to me that I need to make more effort to make sure that we go every single year somewhere to see a pantomime of some description. Friday. I could have finished on a number of things. Um, I, I kind of don't want to leave the word, the week sort of flat, so I'm not going to go anywhere near the Donald Trump thing, even though that's going to be a, a thing in a few weeks. So... Um, I think it's scheduled in for the, the early part of February, but we're going to get a decision on whether he can appear on ballots or not. And this old civil war 
you know, constitutional, whatever it is, clause that potentially allow or disallows anybody who's been seen to cause insurrection uh, from running for president. We'll wait and see how that's adjudicated. Um, Though, as with all these things, it's it's just giving him too much airtime. But it's a it's a whole tough one. But I I don't want to I don't want to go there today. And we probably will go there. Um, well, we're bound to go there further down the line, but I don't want, I don't want to go there. I could have gone foot file, uh, because I've ordered a foot file, um, to help get rid of my Veruca, which is still rumbling on. And I, I've never been so excited to receive anything, uh, from Amazon as I was to receive this foot file. And it's amazing. Um, and it really, really makes filing down the dead skin and what have you around my Veruca a lot easier. No, you didn't want to hear it, but Hey, that's just the way it crumbles. What I'm going to finish with is I'm going to finish with something that happened that I'd kind of forgotten about. And then I thought about again uh, yesterday and thought, you know what, I need to I need to mention this. Um, There's a tradition in our house when I was growing up that when we made trifle and trifles very much a 70s and 80s um, kind of dessert. Um, it, it harks back to those things that, that we did. It, you know, I mean, trifle was a staple before the world went crazy and Arctic roll became a thing. Um, and it, and it certainly plays into, you know, afternoons where Sunday you would have a fruit cocktail out of a tin, uh, with pouring cream and also the days when dream topping was a thing. Um, but the reason why I'm mentioning trifle is because for whatever reason in our house, we didn't make it with sponge fingers or anything like that. Uh, we, we use Swiss roll. So the base for our trifle was always a chopped up lion's Swiss roll, right? And it was always the, at that point in time, there were two versions of Swiss roll. There was your classic Swiss roll, which obviously was sponge and jam. And if you're not from the UK and you don't know what I'm talking about, then it's it's essentially a very flat piece of um, thin sponge and you put jam on it and you roll it into a roll and it looks like it has a, a, a swirl of jam running through it. You you will know what I mean if you've seen it. It's very much a Christmas log kind of thing, but it's back in the day, it was a uh, it was a it was a thing to have just Swiss roll. It was it was kind of like a cake before we had options for cake, and and we used to put plain sort of um, sponge with raspberry jam Swiss roll. That used to be the base for our trifle, and then the fruit and the custard and all the other stuff would go on top. Um, and so whenever we make trifle, and and my eldest son loves trifle then that's how we we do it we you know but for the first year i've struggled like hell to get plain swiss roll um and it, i'm sure people think it's it's progress i'm sure this is marked as a, as a as a huge kind of turning point in in the development of civilization but the plain swiss roll you get now tends to be jam and vanilla and they tend to be a lot bigger and they tend to be a little bit fancier and they tend to be more they just look a little grander now, don't get me wrong, Lion Swiss Roll looked fairly pathetic. Uh, they weren't very big, they often got squashed, and they didn't didn't look anything of anything. But they were the perfect base for a trifle. You're going to have to trust me on this. If you've never done it, it really, really, really works. So I ended up going to half a dozen supermarkets or shops, and I just could not get Lion Swiss Roll or anything pertaining to be Lion Swiss Roll anywhere. And it nearly ruined Christmas. I mean, all right, that's a little bit over the top. It didn't nearly ruin Christmas. But the fact is, 
it's it was just it's one of the things that's quietly disappeared in the background and we wouldn't and if we didn't put it in trifle we would never have noticed yet it made me then think about 89 years ago when um the I, I spent the one time I've ever spent in a director's box at a football match and I was I through a friend I was invited to go to the director's box to watch Sheffield United play Stevenage now Stevenage as a football club, is not particularly glamorous. It's a kind of a one reasonable stand, you know, low attendance, couple of thousand people, maybe, maybe not even that. Um, and we were in this director's box at the end of this main stand. And I distinctly remember two things. One, I remember that they had doilies on the plates and I'd not seen doilies for years. But the other thing, and it was the, it was a throwback, but I found it incredibly classy, was that they had Swiss roll, as in Swiss roll, I remember from when I was a kid. But they they had both. They served the chocolate and and sort of uh, vanilla fondant Swiss roll, and they served the classic uh, plain sponge raspberry Swiss roll. And I just I just at that point, at the, because you know Horizons had been had been extended at that point. We were in internet age. You could get anything. You could do anything. Yeah, any, you know, ridiculous amounts of cakes and stuff with a coffee and, and everything was going in one direction. And I go to the director's box at Stevenage Football Club and I get Swiss roll, both varieties, bang from my youth on a plate with a doily. And I just thought that was tremendous. So if you spotlight Swiss roll on your, on your travels, please let me know because I feel like I need to at least buy one more if, if if now it's an endangered sort of species. Um, but it was quite, it was quite a bit. I ended up going to quite a few places looking for it because I got that little bit of a bee in my bonnet of that, about that, about that particular thing. Anyway, back, back to where we started. Happy new year. I hope you well. Uh, I hope everything is going as well as it can go in the first week of January, which is always a trying week, particularly as you try and get back into the swing of, of, of the work thing. Um, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>